When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Coming soon to Podcast One, the Gigi Podcast with Rick Fox, Jace Hall, and Todd Roy. Log on to see the world behind the esports you love and find out what good game really means from the trio who's taken the business by storm, including the three-time NBA champion behind Team Echo Fox. Download new episodes of the Gigi Podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Kevin Pelton on the show. He is one of my favorite guests, one of the most astute people in basketball media, in my opinion, and a great person to talk to at this point. And one one of the places that we start is just the difficulty evaluating these NBA finals with the injuries and availability kind of moving forward. So we talk about the series so far and what we expect moving forward. Then we get into takeaways from this postseason more broadly, you know, what we've learned that can affect teams' decision-making moving forward, our own analysis moving forward. And then we end with an extended conversation about what we're looking for in the offseason. Kevin and I are both a part of the mock-off season that we do on Dunked On, and we think about these things a lot. And so kind of went through different players markets and the the timing dynamics which is something that i've been fascinated with for this offseason so we go through all that really great conversation and it is brought to you by betonline.ag use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent welcome bonus cbs sports hq which you can check out completely for free on various streaming devices yahoo daily fantasy yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the pod 25 promo code for 25 dollars in free play when you make your first deposit and true car great place to sell or trade in your car i love this episode i thought that we it was a hard time to do a show because there's so much that's uncertain. So KP was an absolutely perfect person to talk to. I hope you enjoyed as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks as always for having me. This is a strange time in the NBA Finals because I don't think we've really reached any sort of an equilibrium because of health and everything else that's going on. And I'm wondering, you know, we're through three games. Game three just happened last night. What your feel for this series is so far? Not strong. I mean, yeah. it's weird to have an NBA Finals game. It was a game that on the one hand, it was so pivotal in the series because, you know, I think now the Raptors are probably slight favorites uh, to win, even when you account for, you know, Golden State's uh, the the guys that Golden State is going to get back, and uh, although you know that's probably a factor in it, the fact that you know we can't count on Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson being a hundred percent right out of the box, assuming both those guys play in Game Four. But you know, it, so it was obviously a huge swing game in the series. One the Raptors kind of needed to win to get one at Oracle that they needed. And yet it was also a game that doesn't feel like it informs whatsoever what's going to happen the rest of the series. Right. Like I had this moment about five minutes in 
sitting up top where I just went, okay, I think I know where this game is going. I said, I, I, I don't remember if I said it out loud, but I basically said it's going to be Raptors win by 12 to 18 points, depending on how long Steph Curry plays. And part of that was an understanding of just how limited a lot of the Warriors support players are and that, you know, Steph has, Steph had a, had a really good game. But what the other thing that was really important in, in game three, and I think parts of it will continue, was that the Warriors were bad defensively. Toronto deserves immense credit for forcing those mistakes and for, for creating opportunities for themselves. But the rotations, the crispness, the communication that have been hallmarks of these Warriors teams going back to even the late days of Mark Jackson— that stuff wasn't really there. And I think a lot of that was, was personnel-based because a lot of their best defenders weren't on the floor, but Toronto did a great job of maximizing those advantages. And then also chemistry-based. I mean, sure. these are not units that have played together a lot. I mean, how many minutes do we think that they had played during the regular season with Sean Livingston and DeMarcus Cousins uh, alongside oh, and, and, and Iguodala, I mean, alongside Steph and Draymond? Like, that's that's not a lineup that, you know, I think Steve Kerr threw out there very often during the regular season. I, I So, I mean, I think it was kind of obvious that Clay's injury was going to hurt them a lot defensively, maybe even as much defensively as offensively, depending on how Steve Kerr decided to allocate the minutes that, you know, Thompson was, uh, that they were losing with Thompson. And, you know, I, I think the idea of starting Sean Livingston, I assume, was to kind of try to mitigate the defensive drop off, even if it's you sacrifice some space on offense. And I would say that although it's tough to separate that from Cousins being out there and how much he struggled defensively, it, it did not seem like that worked whatsoever. Yeah, agreed. And when and, and it didn't really I get there were there was that stretch in the second quarter where it got better. But generally speaking, I thought one of the, the bigger differences, like later on when the Raptors often struggled a little bit before the third quarter when they got hot again, coincidentally, not coincidentally, against the same starters, was you know, the Raptors missing some shots that could have easily gone in. So it didn't seem like, other than that six-minute stretch, it didn't seem to me like the Warriors figured a ton out. It was just that things didn't work out as well for Toronto. I mean, what's amazing in hindsight is the fact that, uh, you know, I mentioned this in our our chat before the game started, the fact that the Warriors were still favored even after the news came out that Clay was injured. Like, I mean, yes, on the one hand, Steph, amazing, three guys who have been all-stars, although... I don't know that, you know, Draymond is probably the only one of those we'd say is playing at an all-star level right now, uh, as good as Andre Iguodala has been as a role player. But, like, this is a team that goes four, five, maybe six deep in terms... I mean, everyone they played off the bench last night is on a minimum salary contract. Every single player came off the bench. Like, that's that can't have ever happened in an NBA Finals game before, right? I sincerely doubt it. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. I hadn't I hadn't pieced that together, and something that uh, that struck me during the game, and as Phil Barber pointed out, it, it was true before this game was that Sean Livingston was is now one of eleven, or was already one of eleven different Warriors players that have started a game in these playoffs. And that 11 does not include Kavon Looney, who at many moments of these playoffs has been the Warriors' best center and is now unavailable for the remainder of the finals, it sure sounds like. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, you know, he's probably been one of their five most important players over the course of the playoffs, and he's not one of those guys. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to, you know, they've had, what, nine? This was the, It was a new starting lineup, so it was, what, their 10th different starting lineup in the playoffs so far? 
And it's one thing if it's, you know, just adjusting the center from Jordan Bell to Damian Jones to Bogut. Like, that's that's one thing. But the kind of massive wholesale changes they've needed to make in the wake of Durant's injury first and now Clay's injury, like, never let it be said that this team, if they do get through it, hasn't overcome any playoff adversity or injury luck uh, going against them in the playoffs. Well, yeah, we got into a discussion about this in a different medium a couple days ago. And the way I had framed it, with the notable exception of, of Stephen Curry and some of, the, some of the other injuries, Iguodala and Bogut in the 2016 finals, the Warriors have dealt with a lot of injuries in their playoff run. It's just that they were, I guess the way I would phrase it is fortunately timed. So for example, Kevin Durant missing the, you know, he did miss game six against the Rockets, but the primary time that he missed early on was the Blazers series where they didn't need him to win. Just like he missed a couple games in the Blazers series a couple years ago and they didn't need him to win Curry has missed time in the playoffs as well he missed time that was last year right that he missed time as well and he missed the whole first well, round and in 2016 and of course 2016 so like yeah that, that and that's a huge exception I mean the guy was the unanimous MVP it misses time and then is limited when he comes back but this is a I guess Iguodala during the conference finals last year would probably be the yes. one exception to yeah, the, that would the timing be, yeah, element. Yeah, and that's a good one to bring up. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, and so now it's a lot of these injuries at the same time, and the Raptors have done, you know, they, they've played really well. I, I, I try to be cognizant of this idea that talking about the Warriors' injuries should not in any way denigrate the quality of the way the Raptors have played for the most part. Like, they've, I think they've done a good job. Their defense has been strong overall. But acknowledging the circumstances is, is an important part of telling the story of the series. And in this circumstance, I think it's even more important because part of what we're doing we're between games three and four is figuring out where this is going to go from here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most important question is kind of flipping it forward. I'm, uh, to, to, to go back to that topic for a second, though, one thing I was thinking about last night is I, I think part of the reason these these injuries don't seem as salient as they do for the losing team is it because they just don't fit the narrative of you know, especially the last two years, the Warriors' complete dominance in the playoffs, and then just over this whole stretch, the fact that, you know, aside from the 2016 finals, that they've won every series they've played. So, one thing, and it becomes easy in hindsight to not realize how threatened the team was at various points during that run. Uh, obviously, the 2016 Conference Finals against Oklahoma City, even last year's final uh, Conference Finals before we knew about the severity of Chris Paul's injury, where it looked like you know that that series was was very much up in the air, very much a toss up. But then when you kind of look back on it in hindsight, it seems like oh, it was obvious the whole time that the Warriors were going to win because of the fact that they did. And you know, wondering whether it might be a useful exercise for people to go back and kind of record you know with what they think subjectively are the chances of various teams winning the championship at given points during the playoffs just to kind of remind yourself of the uncertainty that exists in there that is an excellent point i mean a lot of a lot of expectations shift in hindsight and i mean remember the warriors were going into a game seven in houston where each team was missing an important player now chris paul meaningfully more important than andre Wadala, but that was not something that I, I think a lot of us expected was an obvious Warriors win. And the Rockets, you know, had they not missed 27 three-pointers, they they would have had a, a much better chance in the series. And so I think that's a really important element to think about in this is that the way the way I've said this before is that everything seems certain afterwards, but it never seems certain before. And that's yeah, certainly and, and we also Yeah, and we also don't reply, like apply the uncertainty we feel in the present to... You know, when we're thinking about the, the the past or the future. Right. 
And so let's let's think about where the series is going from here. The Raptors have a 2-1 lead. I do not think in this specific iteration of these two teams that theoretically a 3-1 series lead for the Raptors is insurmountable, but it would be pretty damn hard to overcome. So then you get into the question of who's going to play for Golden State in Game 4. And I think one of the biggest impacts of either or both Durant and and Clay Thompson returning is just replacing some of those minimum contract minutes. I mean, we saw Jarebko really struggle in game three. McKinney has been limited. I mean, Livingston just isn't really in the right place in this series. There's so much length on the Toronto defense that he can't really get to those mid-rangers. And so even if Durant or Clay Thompson, if they're limited, they still have to be defended. They're still creating opportunities there. And generally speaking, even if they can't move super well, they're still better defensively than some of the options that were on the table. Absolutely. And our friend Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports uh, was not too busy with the execution of the uh, uh, media jam to uh, report that uh, earlier early uh, Thursday that the that Clay Thompson will play in game four league sources told him after game three so you know I think that that's that's definitely the expectation at this point that at the very least we'll see Clay and Durant's the question mark and it sounds like he's going to do more in practice uh, on Thursday in this off day between games than we've seen him do before and maybe we'll know a little bit more about this after they meet the media and possibly even by the time this podcast is up. Well, hopefully it'll be up quickly enough that it'll that pe- and people listen to it the second it drops, so that that we won't, <laughs> we won't be missing that at all. And, Obviously, yeah, and, and but yeah, I mean it's going to be fascinating to see where all of this goes, and I think that's a you know I've been thinking about Toronto in the course of the series because again we're trying to predict where this is where this is going, and it's not necessarily represent representative sample so far. So I've been thinking a lot about the Buck series and. Toronto's, you know, I, I thought that the defense they played in that series was, it wasn't revelatory because they've been great on defense all year, but it was a reminder of just how much talent they have on that end. And I think they've done a, a really nice job overall in the series. Their job is about to get a lot harder, but they have excellent personnel. And the job that Fred Van Vliet has done on Stephen Curry has been incredibly impressive. Indeed. I don't, did anyone see this coming that he was going to be so effective in that role? Like, you know, Van Vliet's a, a capable defender, certainly, but I, I didn't imagine him as the Steph Curry stopper. And I think this is one of the many areas, though, where, you know, the injuries have impacted the series. The Warriors did a little more in game three to get Van Vliet switched off of Curry, but it was more as a mechanism to create more favorable matchups for Steph, especially, you know, with the other personnel they had last night, uh, than it was a case of them trying to attack Van Vliet and mismatches because that's just not something they really can do without Kevin Durant in the lineup and if Durant's out there you know and you're you're running Curry the Curry Durant famed pick and roll and trying to get Van Vliet switched on Durant and post him up that's all of a sudden a a totally different challenge for Van Vliet than the one he's faced so far. Plenty more to talk about with Kevin Pelton, but first message from betonline.ag. We are now in early June, and this is an absolutely fantastic time in sports. Not only do you have the NBA and NHL finals in a really exciting place, but also action in Major League Baseball. Golf has the U.S. Open coming up really soon, which I'm actually going to attend, which is pretty exciting. And a great way to engage in all of that is betonline.ag. You can sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use the promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% welcome bonus. Something that I really love about betonline.ag is that they have in-game wagering as well. So if you think, ah, maybe you know you're trying to figure out where a game is going in the beginning, but then you get a sense of, oh man, this team's playing really well. Maybe they were missing some shots early and you think they're going to get back into it. 
you can check that out too. It's it's something that I've had some fun with experimenting over the course of the year as somebody who had never experienced in-game wagering before. It, it was fun to to try to test out my feel at certain points in it and ha- had some real fun with it. So don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action. And don't forget to use that promo code PODCAST1 or you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669 to receive a 50% welcome bonus. Don't miss out on any of the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. We also have a message from CBS Sports HQ. Do you miss when sports networks cover just the news and highlights without the yelling and fake debates? If you do, check out CBS Sports HQ. It is the free 24-hour sports network that is built for fans like you and me. It's a great place to get tons of highlights, analysis, and instant game reactions, everything that matters about the game, without diving into the political and social issues like on other sports networks. Also, if you enjoy placing bets or competing against your friends in a fantasy league, their experts are dishing out top picks and advice to help you win. So check out CBS Sports HQ. It is always on and always free. No need to pay a subscription fee or have an expensive cable package. Instead, just download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Fire TV, Roku, or Apple TV to start watching today. Something that that Nate brought up when we recorded Dunkton yesterday is that having Durant on the floor, having Klay Thompson on the floor, changes the personnel and the matchups that the Raptors are going to have because now it becomes less tenable to play Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry together, and Lowry has been very important to the Raptors' offense. They, you know, they run a lot through Kawhi, and then I think they could run a little bit more through Siakam, but Lowry's transition work, his capacity to hit open threes, all of those are are major positives that he brings to the table. I mean, we saw this when he fouled out of, of Game 2. I thought that was a huge swing factor in Game 2 was that completely unnecessary foul with like 3.45 to go. And the Raptors really struggled offensively. Now, they ended the war- They basically stopped the Warriors defensively the rest of that game, and that's what really allowed them to come back into it. But as this, as this series evolves, those sorts of dynamics are going to necessarily change because they have to. I mean, if Nick Nurse faces a choice between, you know, I can only keep one of Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet on the court, I think that's going to be a very difficult choice. I mean, we saw Steph really get going in the first quarter of Game 3 when Van Vliet wasn't out there and and Lowry was defending him, as good as Lowry is defensively. He's not maybe as well equipped. He's more of, you know, the great team defender, uh, not necessarily the kind of take an individual player out of the the game in the same way that Van Vliet has done with his ball denial and everything he's doing off the ball. Right. I, I think that's a really good point. And Curry, yeah, he took, I think it was nine of the Warriors' first 13 shots. And he was super aggressive before Van Vliet checked in. And I think that's part of why, why Nurse had him had Van Vliet start the second half. Right. Yeah, no, 100%, 100% agree on that. So, yeah. Um, I, I think another thing that we should probably discuss, so getting either Clay or Durant back, obviously hugely important because of the reasons you mentioned earlier, just getting you know some of those weaker players off the court, getting another outside shooter out there to space the floor for Steph, another player is capable of creating his own shot. But having the both of them out there is really important now in this series, I think because of Kevon Looney's injury, because of the fact that it gives you the opportunity to go back to uh, the Hamptons five, all of these smaller lineups with Draymond Green at center and not have to be as reliant as DeMar- on DeMarcus Cousins playing that position. Right. And that's not something that we would have expected to be saying after how well Cousins played in game two, but his limitations really came to the fore in game three. And 
he will have challenges. You know, he's it's still getting all the way back. And he also had limitations offensively, you know, didn't show a lot of burst and was, you know, one for seven from the field. And so uh, it was a huge dynamic shift that happened over the course of the last five days that when these players have been out, it was a, the reality was that the Warriors had more talent at center overall than they did at the, the two and the three, let's say. You could go two, three, four if you want. And now with Looney being out and theoretically one or both of those guys getting back, that switches hard the other way, especially with Jordan Bell not showing a ton in the series and Bogut has his limitations as well. So now as soon as basically as soon as Kevin Durant comes back and maybe arguably even before that, we could see more of the of, of Draymond at center, the death lineup and, and various iterations of it. I mean, to me, you know, I one of the things I said last offseason when the Warriors signed Cousins is that he adds volatility. And this is a team that doesn't want volatility. Uh, it's it's sort of flipped. And, and this is no longer really fair to Cousins because a lot of it is a product of the fact that he's coming back from an injury during the NBA finals, playing a much bigger role than, you know, anyone anticipated him having to play because of the un- other injuries that they've faced. But, you know, the the, the flip from game two to game three to Dre- uh, Marcus is about as volatile, as high variance as we've ever seen in a player. And, you know, now they're in a situation where that's not necessarily so bad because of the fact that they actually probably should have been the underdog going into game three but you know definitely it makes it tougher for for Steve Kerr if you've got only so many players that you can play and one of them you don't exactly know what you're going to get out of on a night-to-night basis so I mean I it wouldn't surprise me if in game four you know the Raptors weren't quite as effective attacking Cousins in the pick and roll he got it going a bit more offensively and you know looked more like we saw in game two than game three I mean that's certainly possible but if that doesn't happen I think it's really important for Kerr to have some alternatives and not really be reliant on having to to run him out there for nearly 20 minutes even if he's struggling alternatives are also a good part of the story for Toronto in in game three I thought that Serge Ibaka played very well and he was was impacting the game and on really on both ends of the floor had had a couple of nice blocks also looked more comfortable to me offensively than he had been early in this series and again that's another look and I thought that the Bucks were going to be a, a really fortuitous matchup for Ibaka. I, I, said, I think I said something like, this isn't Marcus Ole's series. He ended up having some better games, but having two different options at the five is a huge thing, especially when OG Ananobi hasn't been available. And so the vaunted, anticipated Siakam at the five, Kawhi at the four iterations aren't as viable, at least against the Warriors, when, like, when, when Durant or somebody like that gets back. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how the Raptors match up if the Warriors are able to get back to the Hamptons five and Draymond at center. It's just not. I mean, I think there was a one stretch at one point in game two where they ran out Draymond at center for a couple of minutes, but that's all I remember in this series. We really haven't gotten much of a sense of it, and it wasn't long enough or effective enough that I think that Nick Nurse really had to adjust to it. Uh, you mentioned Aninobi. Is it surprising that he didn't play at the end of the at the end of game three that seems like kind of a perfect opportunity with that lead being pretty comfortable after about the six minute mark of the fourth quarter to get his feet wet and get him back out on the court I agree with you I I think it would have been a good opportunity and to me maybe that's a signal it's always hard in those sorts of circumstances when you have a single data point or a few in this case to say maybe that means that he's really not ready really not available or maybe Nick Nurse sees the situation differently than I do but yeah I mean it certainly looked like 
a great opportunity, a low risk opportunity to to see what he can bring to the table because at some point in this series, I won't go so far as to say that they'll need him, but that he would definitely help. Yeah, he could be useful. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I talked about this series potentially uh, at the beginning of last year or even last offseason when I thought the Raptors were the favorites to win the East before Milwaukee's emergence, I mean, Anunoby was a big part of why I thought the Raptors could match up well with the Warriors in terms of just being able to throw multiple uh, defenders with with length and the ability to space the floor at, at Golden State. And it's funny that, you know, kind of kind of neither team has ended up looking exactly like we would have thought in a hypothetical finals matchup as we previewed it six months ago. I think that that that's a great first of all, it's a great point, but it leads into something that I've been thinking about. You know, the playoffs take lots of forms and, you know, you play who's in front of you and everything like that. So I've been thinking about just really what the big picture takeaways are from this postseason. And I mean, it's always healthy to focus on things other than who wins the championship, who wins the finals MVP. But I also think for a couple different reasons, one of them being, I'll I'll actually lay out a couple of them, that the biggest question that I wanted to answer this offseason was the role of the tradition, not tradition, traditional center in terms of like just legit tall guy in the modern NBA. And I think we got part of the way there, but Joel Embiid being limited due to injury and and, and illness at, at moments in time and Nikola Jokic not playing a legit NBA defense. I don't think we got as much of an answer as I expected and hoped for. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Not, not legit NBA defenses, not, not top tier defenses. Let's not, not, yeah, like, not like, let's say, conference finals defenses. Like that, I, I that mean, sort of level. It, it's been interesting. I think that Marc Gasol has been able to play, you mentioned this earlier, such a large role for Toronto throughout these last two rounds. I think that's something I didn't necessarily anticipate or expect. And, you know, maybe it's just a testament to his uh, his basketball IQ and his ability to, to recognize plays and make up for the fact that he isn't as quick as he used to be. But that's been interesting. Brooke Lopez stayed on the court a lot for Milwaukee in the last round. So, you know, we haven't had... Other than the Warriors-Rockets series where Clint Capella had a difficult time staying on the court and the Warriors were small pretty much the whole time, we haven't really had a ton of small ball in the last two rounds of the playoffs. Right, and that inspires two different things for me. So one was the Sixers adjustment of putting Embiid on Pascal Siakam. I thought that really allowed Embiid to become a more impactful defensive player in that series, really did help them out. And the other one being Marcus Gasol bringing positive value on the high Steph Curry pick and roll was was a revelation. And a lot of what that was about, especially in game one, where I thought that really helped swing the game, was Gasol understanding the passing angles that Stephen Curry likes and really how he responds to a trap, to a double, to, to those sorts of pressures. And he likes to throw the ball over the top. Marc Gasol has unbelievable hands. And is, is I, I thought of it as more recognition rather than quick quick twitch reflexes but either way he was getting his hands on balls and whether it was becoming a turnover or just not getting anything from it if if the Warriors can avoid some uh, if you can avoid giving the Warriors some of those four on threes also the Raptors are significantly better at defending those than other teams are it gets them out of out of sync out of the rhythm and I think the Raptors have done a really nice job of something that we haven't seen as much 
in the playoffs over the last few years just because teams don't have the combination of personnel and and mentality of getting the Warriors out of some of the ball and player movement that works so well for them. <laughs> except for game two when they had all those. Well, yeah, except, for, except for game two. Yeah. That's true. I, was, I, I, I got myself with the Marcus Gasol thing into game one frame of mind, and I thought they did a pretty good job of that overall in game three. Just Curry was ridiculous. But that speaks, I think, again, I think, to the difficulty of understanding where this series is going over the next four games. The fact that there's been, you know, so little, I think, stylistic carryover from one game to the next. I mean, game one, you saw the Warriors stayed in it with their offensive rebounding. Game two, they didn't have a single second chance point. Like, there's there's just not been much correlation from one game to the next, partially because of personnel and partially just because of style. Yeah, and that's that's going to be something, I, I guess we just kind of have to deal with it. I mean, I, I have an idea of, of where these are going. But then there's another part, and this is something that I think media members and fans alike sometimes get in trouble with, is that just because a player is back on the floor does not mean they're healthy or that they're 100% or anything like that. And so what Kevin Durant we see, what Klay Thompson we see, that's going to be really important too. For sure. I mean, I think one of the big questions is, is Klay Thompson going to be able to defend Kawhi Leonard, who, by the way, is clearly clearly less than 100% himself physically. And uh, we've learned that it's related to his knee over the course of the last few days here. Uh, yeah, but if if he can defend Kawhi, it just creates much more favorable matchups for the Warriors, I think, overall. Uh, you know, if he's just out there and defending one of their guards, you know, it's it's still obviously very good to have him, particularly at the offensive end of the court, but not quite as much of an upgrade as if you're getting the clay who can do that. Especially because that opens up Draymond Green to do more destructive things. I mean, so we, we, one of the huge elements of Game 2 was in the second half, Kerr went to Clay on Kawhi and Iguodala on Siakam. And so the, it looked a little bit weird at first to see Draymond on Kyle Lowry or in, in different iterations on different guys. But he was able to freelance more, because partially just because Kawhi had the ball, has the ball in his hands a lot more than Kyle Lowry does in this version of the Raptors offense. So having your best help defender a little bit more available to help because he doesn't have to stay tethered to the other team's best player is a huge benefit. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's one of those secondary effects that you know people kind of think about matchups is just lining up head to head. But that's the kind of benefit you can generate uh, as well. And the Raptors have... I mean, on the other end of the floor, they have so many capable and impactful help defenders that when the Warriors are more limited, or even, you know, when some of their mixed lineups, when they're closer to fully healthy, those players can be more impactful and destructive as well. Yeah. And one thing we didn't touch on that, or I wanted to touch on when you mentioned it earlier, kind of the way that the Raptors have defended the last two rounds, it seems like they are extremely well equipped to take advantage of this specific version of the Warriors that we saw in game three that didn't have much shooting. They, you know, were playing a similar style against Milwaukee, obviously against a different team, you know, as that was really to try to take away Giannis's drives rather than Steph Curry. In this case, it was a very different style of player, but you know, they're, they know what they're doing in terms of building a wall and getting back in the paint and taking away easy opportunities. So, you know, it's, it's even more important, I think for the Warriors to have the shooting that Clay and KD provide against these Raptors than most other teams. And, you know, I don't know if this is a bit of a detour, but there was an interesting point that Jeff Van Gundy made on the broadcast at some point in the fourth quarter of game three, where he said, you know, this version of the Warriors wouldn't be a playoff team in the Western Conference. And and I tend to disagree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, number one, we were looking at that. It was 
it was a night where Toronto shot the ball so well, getting a lot of open opportunities, granted, but a night where Toronto shot the ball, they might have beaten a fully healthy Warriors team, even in Oracle. Uh, you know, can't say for certain. But the other aspect of it is we're seeing this Warriors group against Toronto in the NBA Finals as locked in as you can possibly be. It's very different than watching this specific group without Clay and KD try to play an 82-game NBA season. Exactly. And you could think about the average NBA game. So let's say you take like the one of those mid Eastern Conference seeds. So those were playoff teams, you know, like the Brooklyn Nets. If the Warriors are playing the, these Warriors are playing the Brooklyn Nets in February. Yeah, I think they'd have a they'd have a pretty good shot. You know, the the Nets are a good team. They played hard. But then so you start there and then you think about when they would play like the Suns or you know any of those drags and they're just putting up those wins. I think they'd be a playoff team, but they wouldn't be necessarily a strong seed. And this is a really good Raptors team. And that gets into kind of a question that I've been trying to process. So, I mean, it's very hard to predict the future in this series. We've spent some time in these, you know, 30 or so minutes hammering that out. But what what I'm trying to put my finger on is, let's say the Warriors get one or both of their their starters back and they win game four reasonably. Let's, Let's say they win it by fewer than 10, but more than two. They're presumably their favorites in the series, but how strong of favorites, like in that sort of a circumstance, like I still think it's pretty precarious ground for them, not only because Toronto would have home court, but because Toronto is a damn good team. Yeah, I mean, I... One of the things I've been thinking about a lot in this playoffs is I think that people get in trouble when they think too much about the specifics of a situation and not enough about the generalities of it. Uh, uh, this is something you know Ben Polk has written about, kind of the, the inside view of something versus the outside view. And in this case, the inside view is the Warriors' talent given these injuries versus the Raptors' talent. But the outside view is – Look, when a series is tied 2-2, the team with home court advantage has a massive edge in the series historically because of the fact that, you know, the the road team has to win one of the two games on the road, the lower seed does. And one of those games is game seven, which is historically very difficult to win as the road team. Now, you know, I think home court advantage is a roadie a little bit. So maybe, you know, it's not quite as strong as it used to be. And we've seen teams come back from this a couple of times in this year's playoffs. Uh, Portland against Denver winning game seven on the road and then Toronto against Milwaukee in the conference finals winning game five on the road and then finishing off that series at home. But, you know, I think that. You know, people tend to us underestimate the the edge that is provided by home court advantage when you get into that situation. So I, I think that would definitely apply here. I mean, right now, as I look at it, I feel like Toronto's a slight favorite in the series. So if Golden State won, it would probably flip it back to the Warriors being a slight favorite, but certainly not an overwhelming one. Do you want to mention the the thing you said about Finals MVP last night? Uh, that that if Steph wins it in a losing effort, that that would be the ultimate like troll job, given the the fact that he never won it in any of their wins. Yeah, I, I don't expect it to happen, but it would be pretty hilarious because of, of how everything happened. And I mean, you know, dropping dropping forty seven in a loss and and everything else. And I mean, I mean, I think Kawhi has played well enough, you know, to to be that. You know, for me, for me, uh, uh, and this was, you know. In the early days of Dunked On, Nate and I had this extended argument about that LeBron 2015 finals, about how good does a losing team player have to be in order to be in consideration, much less win it. And, you know, how long does the series have to go and all that stuff and so on. But but another part of it is just, is there a worthy player on the winning team? And 
I think that the most valuable player can be on a losing team. Absolutely. I, I, I think that there are circumstances where it can happen. But yeah, that would be hilarious, though, to be sure. Consider because of the all of the prologue that exists in this specific question. Yeah, I mean, there's so much debate about Steph's lack of finals MVPs, how that took place, which is not, in, as it turns out, in some sort of conspiracy to deny him the uh, 2015 MVP, which also didn't actually deny him the 2015 MVP, even as the conspiracy was laid out. It would have just denied LeBron. LeBron James. Sharing it. Yeah, which is uh, which is hilarious as well. And I mean, yeah, and I don't know that that whole thing was a was a good reminder of just how much of of those parts of discussions are not necessarily public knowledge. Like I cracked up because I was I was in the building when that happened. I I loosely remembered where a lot of the voters were sitting. I also remember yelling at certain voters that they should have voted for Steph Curry <laughs> and didn't because I think I think Rachel Nichols tweeted out the results during the like during the post game scrum and so i was just like walking over to various members i won't say who but the you could guess who i have a personal relationship with on that list being like what the hell <laughs> like this is this is not the way this is supposed to happen not that you know i i thought that lebron had a, had a decent case and i thought iguodala had an all right case but it was i was just sitting there going like you're overthinking this and ben taylor had a good had a good tweet on thursday morning talking about you know granted scoring isn't everything but how the highest scoring player on the winning team has won all but three finals MVPs since I think it was 86, 87. And the other two, they weren't the highest scoring player by less than half a point per game. And then Curry, it was it was so different. And again, scoring isn't everything, but uh, it is frustrating that I wonder if, if, I mean, there are many reasons why those voters should have voted differently, but just not having this narrative, which just takes oxygen out of so many other interesting discussions that could be happening right now. It is a little bit frustrating, even though my belief is that it would have led to another frustrating conversation because that's just the way this usually works. <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of frustrating conversations. If I might uh, make a shameless plug off of this. One of the times in NBA history where the the leading scorer on the winning team was not the MVP of the series was the 1979 NBA Finals where the Sonics beat the Bullets. Dennis Johnson got MVP averaging 22.6 points per game. Gus Williams averaged 28.6 points per game in that series. But DJ was second on the team with 6.0 assists and dominant defensively as he often was and and got the MVP of that series, which I just happened to do a two-part podcast uh, talking with several of the players and Coach Lenny Wilkins about on uh, the fabulous Pelton cast, my uh, Seattle sports podcast. That's fantastic. When I have when I have some time, I, d- I definitely want to listen to that. I saw it pop in. And I, know, I know that's a subject that you're passionate about, so I'm really excited to see it bear, bear even more fruit. And the fact that you got to talk with people involved is fantastic. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. And I was I was thrilled with the number of people who said yes and were willing to share. You know, I did hour long sit down interviews with Wilkins, Jack Sigma and Wally Walker and and also talked to very briefly to Gus Williams and, and then Fred Brown, the sixth man on that team. So uh, it was a lot of fun to do. But I recognize the timing of the dropping those podcasts right at the at the 40th anniversary, which was last Saturday, but also at the start of the NBA finals. Not ideal for a lot of NBA fans who might have wanted to listen to that. Well, but the beauty of of a concept like that is that people can people can listen to it. They can download and subscribe in their podcast player if they're choosing, and and listen to it at another point. And you know that's something I, I sometimes try to do with Real Jam Radio, not to that extent, obviously. But I mean, people will be looking for content in a few weeks, and it will be a great thing to, for people to fall back on. 
Yeah, once they finish with the uh, mock offseason. Yeah, and thank you for leading us into another another topic. Unless you have more in the finals. I don't want to shortchange that if you have more there. I mean, the one thing we should probably discuss is while we were having this conversation, uh, my ESPN colleague Tim Bontemps reported that Kevon Looney could potentially return during the finals uh, after further evaluations. That's interesting. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. And his his absence was an important part of Game 3, so whether he can return... and. And uh, honestly, in the second half of game two, I got I got some crap because I was critical of Bogut's defense. The Warriors played well when he was on the floor, but I thought it was, you know, it was one of those things where the gamble paid off, but it wouldn't necessarily pay off in the future. And he was the Warriors' best center in game three. So it's a little bit early for that. Still more to discuss with Kevin Pelton, but first a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. This is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. The NBA and NHL finals are going on. Also, Major League Baseball and golf are really starting to pick up. So if you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. They offer single-day and week-long contests so you can pick a new team every day. And Yahoo Daily Fantasy has the lowest management fees across the industry. So you don't need to play with the other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and find the contest that's right for you. Use the POD25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. Once you're in, you can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they pair you with another player of your skill level, which is great, especially for people like me who are getting started with Daily Fantasy. And you can play a quick match contest for free or for cash. And what makes it great is that there's no management fee, so you keep 100% of your winnings. If you want, you can also play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. No matter what you want to try, go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use that pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play. When you make your first deposit, soon you get to playing, soon you can get to winning. So go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy to start playing today. Also have a message from TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you are finished, you will get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True Cash offer not available in all areas. We can get to to the off season, to the mock off season, and part of the reason that I really enjoy the mock off season is that it's it's a, a, a different way of trying to contextualize, predict, get a feel for where an off season is going and. This year, more so than any other in the time that I've been covering the NBA, I'm having trouble getting a read on which players, which teams are going to treat certain decisions as, you know, being being hot, stronger in the pecking order. So is Kevin Durant going to wait in, like to see what Kyrie Irving is going to decide? Or like how, basically whose decisions from the player side, the team side, or in certain cases, in many cases, both, which are dependent and which are contingent, and then which things are just going to be decided by themselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been thinking about the mock offseason a little bit, and it feels like 
this year more than most years, it's really dependent on where the top guys sign. And it almost kind of feels like, I mean, it would be unrealistic to do this, but that we should run different scenarios of, you know, Durant and Kyrie sign with the Knicks. One of Durant and Kyrie signs with the Knicks. Kawhi stays in Toronto. Kawhi goes to the Clippers because of the fact that there, there's all these ripple effects from those decisions that are going to uh, have an impact. But you know, I, I think one thing I think about in free agency is that there's going to be so much focus on the top guys, and understandably so because they're the ones that you know play, have the, play the largest role in swinging the outcome of the games that we're talking about right now. But you know, I think that there are there's an incredible number of quality second tier free agents on the market, and where they land is going to go a long way to determining who makes the playoffs next year. That's a great point. And what the and because this year there there are basically more like high money slots than there are players who are worth that. How teams approach those kind of second and third tier players is going to be extremely important. You know, who can cultivate a market, who what kind of teams those players choose, and also what teams so like what it kind of you I don't know if you're thinking about this in the same way that I am. One of the other things that that made me consider is these circumstances where a team that has lofty aspirations and doesn't get the players they want in that first batch, how do they respond to it? Do they go down to that second and third tier and say, hey, we'll take you either for one year or more likely for a longer term deal, like you're the best we're going to do, or do they keep their powder dry for 2020 or 2021? And those have important long-term ramifications. I yes. mean, you look at the the impact that is still being felt now of the Knicks and Lakers deciding not to wait in the summer of 2016 when so much money was being thrown around and, you know, Phil Jackson deciding to sign Joakim Noah to a four-year contract, which, you know, still is uh, staggering to me. And, you know, obviously they're going to be paying out. They stretch the final year of that deal, but it, it will impact their cap space this offseason. And then the Lakers with Mozgov and the Wall Day, which cost them D'Angelo Russell and and Dang, despite taking a buyout, will also be on their books the next three years. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not just what it means in terms of 2019-20, but also what it means the next maybe potentially three years if those teams aren't uh, patient. Yeah, and and it is going to have big ripple effects, and it's and you brought up the Lakers and Knicks, and I think that's a great point. But it also had the effects that it had on teams like the Blazers. You know, I don't think the opportunity cost was particularly high for Portland, and we'll see whether that you know whether that comes to roost a little bit this year with Alfred Camino or some of their other decisions. But think about all of the other front offices and, and teams that had these had issues to deal with because of money where they they thought basically it was burning a hole in their pocket, and so they spent on Bismack Biombo, or they spent on Myers Leonard and some of those guys it was because they had full bird rights other ones it was like hey we have this money and I mean Yamahimi is another great example of this the Washington Wizards spent on him in, in the middle of this span where they signed three max contracts in 14 months but probably didn't know that at the time and then that really kind of set the table beyond all their other struggles and everything to have to make the moves that that you know that Grunfeld and eventually their replacement general manager whenever they should hire somebody will have to do if they hire somebody maybe maybe they're just going to keep that position yeah they're going to they're going to go with the really bold strategy of just not having a general manager I mean I'd be happy for uh, Tommy Shepard who's running that that front office well, on no, Tommy in- Shepard would be the uh, you're you're talking about where they just 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 keep like basically just like don't promote <laughs> like Dwight and just keep just like just let him run the office as assistant to the regional manager i like it so something like that yeah 
So I, I brought up that idea of the timing and the chronology. What it, I, I mean, it's, it's hard because this is in many ways more source reporting, which neither of us specialize in, as opposed to the analysis work that, that we do and in terms of how this is going to play out. And, and what's fun, I've talked before about how I really enjoy uncertainty in sports. I think that it's, it's a part of what makes what we do so fun. And this year, it's it's intriguing because, as always with free agency, these big things that we're talking about that are going to affect the arc of the league for the next decade plus, really, a lot of it comes down to what individuals are prioritizing, what they value, sometimes these personal relationships, sometimes we find about that after the fact. I mean, you could talk about the Miami guys in the Team USA stuff early on. I mean, Iguodala, Durant, and Curry going to chapel together. I'm trying to remember, I think that was when, when that was, but all those sorts of things. So it does come down to these individuals, the connections they have, the relationships, not just like, oh, I would be awesome on Team X, and so I'm going to sign with them. Yeah, and and also where do you want to live? I mean, there's all these outside factors that we tend to think of it as, you know, a strictly a basketball decision when we analyze it because that's how all we experience of it is the basketball. But it is a real life decision for these players. And in the same way that, you know, your decision of where to work or what to do isn't necessarily informed strictly by, hey, what's going to be most interesting for the listener. It's also based on, you know, your your personal uh, desires and 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 deeds uh that makes it all the much more difficult to to predict from the outside i was talking with rob mahoney last week in this space and we were previewing the finals and he brought up an idea that i hadn't seriously considered that ended up becoming reported a few days later about the possibility of Kawhi leonard taking a shorter term contract and with the raptors i should i should note and and it fascinated me then it is continuing to fascinate me now because with so many teams having cap space and you know the ridiculous proportion more than half the league hitting free agency this offseason depending on a few factors but i think more than half is probably a fair estimate that my thought was you know this is when everybody's going to get their ducks in a row that they're going to make the trades make the signings and everything else because they have the space but if that's not what a couple of the players want you know if whether that's Kawhi Leonard maybe Kevin Durant just says you know I, I want I want to see what the Knicks do from this point maybe I'll go there eventually but I, that team is not good enough for me to win right now and that would add another another wrinkle to this offseason and force a lot of these teams that have to have rafts and rafts of contingency plans to make even more <laughs> like what happens yeah, to I mean, the clippers if Kawhi leonard signs a one plus one it's a great question i mean the the good news is i think the fact that enough of their quality players are on rookie contracts that they don't face the time pressure i mean the lakers are another interesting one if you know say that anthony davis doesn't get traded there, but doesn't get traded to a situation where you expect him to resign. You know, do you keep your cap space open for the summer of 2020 and try to sign him outright in free agency? How does that impact what you do with Brandon Ingram, who's extension eligible and would be a restricted free agent at that point? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of variables. And I have this pesky fear that uh, that will not dissipate until something changes in early July that it's going to take a little longer this time because there are so many players and it kind of it's kind of that idea of when you're driving along a single lane road and you can only go as fast as the slowest driver and if if these decisions are more contingent on each other then the person you know so I, I'm thinking kind of paralleling LeBron a few years ago that Generally, once a player has done the whole meetings and presentation, song and dance, that they don't necessarily want to do that again. And so a lot of the players in this free agent class have done that before. You know, like Kevin Durant is probably most prominent among that, you know, the Hamptons meetings and everything else like that. But 
Kyrie hasn't done that. Kawhi hasn't done that. Kemba Walker hasn't done that, whether he wants to or not. I mean, he had that that interview with Jared Weiss from Tokyo talking about how Charlotte is his first priority, which sent a shiver down my spine to somebody who wants Kemba Walker on a different team than the Charlotte Hornets. But I, that's my instinct is that, you know, Vegas Summer League starts on July 5th, and I'm guessing either some things resolve right before that or right around then. Yeah, we've been lucky the last few years where the decisions have happened from top guys Thanks, at LeBron. the latest on the 4th of July. And last year, obviously, it was great with LeBron making his decision on July 1st. It felt like everything was wrapped up by the 4th of July, which was was great. But yeah, it does feel like th- things may drag out into that next week. Now, I think the other interesting aspect of that is, so are there teams who don't really have a chance at those top guys who can take advantage of the fact that other teams are so busy waiting on that that they can aggressively go out and pitch someone? Uh, I'm not exactly sure that is. I mean, Chris Middleton comes to mind, but Milwaukee won't be worried, waiting for anyone else, so that won't be an issue. You know, maybe maybe it's Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris from Philadelphia. Those are you know the other strongest, the second tier guys. Uh, is it Nikola Vucevic, perhaps? I mean, someone like that, I feel like, is going to surprise us by signing quickly for a lot more money than we expect in a place we don't expect. I agree that it's going to happen. I have a lot of trouble figuring out where it's going to be. And part of that is because this year, I think bird rights are really important. So a lot of these guys have the leverage. Let's say Vooch. I mean, I expect Vooch to sign earlier. I don't think his decision is as dependent on the other players as others. It seems to me like it's going to be Sacramento. Basically, will Sacramento make a bid that is so high that Orlando just will say, no, we're good? Like that, that To me, that's the real question mark there. But teams always come out of the woodwork. Vooch had an awesome season. I'm so happy for the success that he had. But you're right that there are certain players that I think will not feel risk. I, you know, Chris Middleton to me is an example of that. Chris Middleton's going to get a lucrative offer from the Bucks at some point. You know, he, he kind of has that in his back pocket, but that isn't necessarily true of every player. And and th- I think the same thing also happens for teams. Like there was this discussion that's been happening after, especially after Shamstranya's report about the potential teams for D'Angelo Russell. And I was sitting there looking at that list, going, "Yeah, I understand. Like Russell, exactly the type of player who it's like I I value less than other GMs, but." I expect to get paid because of the way it works out. But when you look at that list, they were all teams that made sense to be interested in him, but they were not teams that had a particularly strong capacity to actually sign him to an offer sheet. And unless Brooklyn wants to play ball, then that really limits his market in terms of getting full value if the Nets are going to play hardball, which they should. And and then there's also the possibility that the Nets end up with Kyrie and D'Angelo Russell is kind of not in their picture at all. And then what does his market look like? Yeah, I heard some conversation about Kyrie and D'Angelo Russell playing together. I believe they like played for the same high school coach. Like there is there is some sort of personal connection. They grew up in in, in similar areas. But from a basketball perspective, I don't like those guys playing together because no. I mean, especially the defensive limitations. I'm sure people talk about oh, you can't split the ball in two. And, and but I think both those guys can be productive off ball, even if they don't like it all that much. But defensively, I mean, how the hell does that work? I mean. They can be I, – I think one thing we need to think about sometimes is you know, there's a lot of talk about can players play together, and I think often that's the wrong way to look at it. It's more like 
can they be effective together? Can they be maximized together? And, you know, that is, is Zach always talked about, like, if you're going to have a championship team, inevitably you're going to have enough shot creators that not all of those guys are getting maximized. But the that's with Kyrie and D'Angelo Russell probably aren't a championship team and they're not getting the max out of those guys. And also it would require a lot of salary cap machinations. I mean, pre- presumably they'd have to either stretch or trade Alan Crabb. So, yeah, I just don't think that's a realistic consideration. I think it's probably either or. The way you talked about that in terms of shot creators and championship quality got me thinking about the Sixers. And I mean, they were so close to making the conference finals. And I wonder how they, how Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, they're the most important factors here that you could talk about. Elton Brand is another swing factor here. And depending on the quality of offers they're willing to make of how do, how do all of the elements in place for the Sixers treat this season? Do they go, hey, you know, we didn't really get to have our group together because even after they traded for Tobias Harris, due to injuries, they basically didn't get that group together. And then Embiid was limited and everything else that happened after that. And so from Elton Brand's perspective, you can, you can make the offers, but then what, what does Jimmy Butler want? I, I expect Tobias Harris to be back because they traded for him and, and it was one of those circumstances where they could have just signed him outright. And if they if it it would be really foolhardy for them to have made that trade, you know, and then and then not given him like a max or something close to it. And maybe Tobias Harris just he's going to have other max offers, I would expect maybe want something else. But how those guys in particular interpret what happened this season is both intriguing because there are multiple different cogent explanations, but also really important because any one of them saying no totally changes what the Sixers are and presumably at least one or maybe two or three other franchises. I mean, it it would be tough for the Sixers to choose Harris over Butler just because of the fact that they gave up, you know, more for him. Although I'm not, yeah, they probably did give up more for him and did it basically more recently. Uh, you know, it seems like Butler, certainly in this year's playoffs, was much more important to them providing the shot creation late that Harris doesn't and Ben Simmons hasn't at this stage of the career. And Joel Embiid is always going to have kind of a tough time doing as a seven footer. So, you know, that'd be I mean, look, they give up a lot for both those guys. Letting either of them walk is tough, but you also can't just sign them because of the what you invested in them and that being a sunk cost. I mean, I, I, I think one thing that leads me to, though, is, you know, if if the Raptors do win this series they win the championship and win it pretty comfortably because of the Warriors injuries and the Sixers ended up giving them their toughest test by far en route to the championship does that you know kind of change the way the organization saw the season I think it does and I think it also could change things for you know Jimmy Butler of hey we have a chance to win a championship and remember that some of the players aren't are going to decide before they know the full landscape and that's what I think is so so fascinating about this year is especially because of the uncertainty with the Warriors with Kevin Durant and some with Klay Thompson but I think I think I know where that story is going that this is a year and I guess you could say this in 2016 because of the Durant uncertainty where I don't think we know how good the top, like, let's say the top two, top four thresholds in team quality are going to be because there's a chance that these guys spread out a lot more and that it's going to be a lower threshold to win a championship, not just because of the Warriors, but because some of the other teams, it's going to be a lower threshold in 2020 than it was in 2019. And so then how do the Sixers approach that? Do they go, hey, look, we got we got so close and nobody's nobody's better would be incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the next step in that equation is not only if the Raptors win the championship and the Sixers were the toughest test, but then if Kawhi leaves the Raptors and all of a sudden you're feeling like, hey, we're 
were on paper the best team in the Eastern Conference. I mean, Boston looks like they're not likely to resign Kyrie. I mean, Milwaukee is basically, you know, could be the only other team that's close to what we saw them being this season. And they've well, got their and, own and, concerns in free and agency. And Milwaukee's best case scenario is keeping the same team. Like they, it's right. almost impossible for them to get better. I, I wrote about that in their offseason preview for the for the Athletic about how they're the only team that the best use of their mid level exception is retaining a player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I think it's even optimistic to think that they'll be as good in terms of you know the roster on paper as they were this year. I think they're you know one of those guys. Miritich seems very unlikely to return after he fell out of the rotation in the conference finals and given how in demand he's going to be from other teams. So, you know, it's really going to be all about internal development, particularly from Giannis being able to take that next step for them. So, yeah, it's a fascinating summer. But I, I actually think the real question here is what free agents is Team Duncan going to prioritize to overcome their their devastating overtime loss in the finals to Team Pool? Well, yeah, they, they they need somebody to get to get back in transition defense. That that would be an well, actually, I guess Nate Duncan was often back in transition defense because he didn't get up in, in half court offense. But yeah, I, I could I can think of somebody who has a high motor, very lacking in terms of skill, size, quickness, any of those attributes, but a very high motor. If I'm on Team Duncan next year, <laughs> yeah, and if you do it, then I don't have to. So that'd be nice. <laughs> um, so another thing I, I wanted to I wanted to talk about briefly for this offseason, this is me kind of getting into the mock mock mode, is one of the challenges that we deal with with that is the four of us at certain to a certain extent are a hive mind, even though like we all have differences of opinion in terms of players. And with so <laughs> Angela much, Russell. Yeah. With so much flexibility, I, I was even going to say Dwight Powell, but uh, the, well, he's not he's not a free agent. Did you see he's opting in now? What? More news breaking during he's going to opt in and sign an extension. Okay, well, so that's so that's interesting for a couple different reasons because he could have opted out and functionally signed right signed a contract. That's really interesting. Yeah, Brad Townsend broke that news and and Bain McMahon confirmed it. Oh man. So so because what what I was expecting was going to happen there was he was going to opt out and sign a contract that was lucrative but had a lower starting salary to give the Mavericks a little bit right. of extra spending power. I had thought the same thing. And that's apparently not going to happen. Oh man. So so that means you don't get to overpay him in the mock-off season. That's, that's I mean I, I feel like the deal I made for him as Atlanta a couple of years ago was very <laughs> reasonable. I, I stand that, by that. That, en- deal. that entire that entire trade was was presaged by or was was set up by you and i fundamentally disagreeing on the value of dwight powell as a basketball player which is which is yep. fantastic especially because we agree on a lot of stuff but that's where i wanted to get into with this was two different parts of this of the same question which is what players are are going to be left out in the cold when like and basically like undervalued by by this market just preliminarily it's not like oh let's go through the whole list or anything like that and then some players that are could potentially get get overvalued by the market and so like i'll start with that i think vooch is going to get overpaid this year that's interesting because it doesn't feel like many teams are going to go after centers but i guess it only takes one it only takes one possibly two I mean, I'm fascinated to see how the market values Brook Lopez because he was yes. so good this season. But can you expect that to translate in another situation? He's older. I don't know if you want to commit multiple years to him. I, I just have no feel for that free agency at all. Another one that I really don't have a good feel for is Bojan Bogdanovic. Like Bogdanovic I, think, I think he's going to get overpaid. That's my instinct. And I mean, 30 years old, had a career year you know and and also had a couple different opportunities to shine i thought he did better with a larger role in the offense that i anticipated and you know 
the the Pacers, it, it's one of those circumstances where I think there is a that kind of baked in thing where they played better immediately after Oladipo went out, so people thought things went better than they did overall. But right. them get, but then they did get swept out of the playoffs by the Celtics, so you have you have that as well. And then the Celtics, not you know, it's different when you get swept out of the playoffs by a team that ends up faring well versus a team that gets waxed in the next round, even if it was by a great Buck squad. But yeah, Bogdanovich is a really hard one for me to calibrate. Al Aminu, I'm having real trouble with, especially with the the unfortunate passing of Paul Allen. Like, I think that's going to be a calibrator for a few different things for Portland. And and Aminu has limitations, but I think he's a valuable regular season player. And I mean, the funny thing is, before this year, he was actually one of the biggest playoff overachievers when true. I went and looked at it. But he had that great series against the Warriors two years ago, in which the the, the Blazers still got swept because uh, Nurkic was out that year. He played briefly, and and they were the eighth seed. They weren't as they were, they were is good at that point but it's kind of funny how like quickly those perceptions swing right and then another you know like like, i i think part of it for me this offseason is going to be players that i think of as similar similar levels not similar talents in terms of their games that get paid dramatically differently like i for some reason i just think somebody's going to pay deandre jordan and i'm going to get angry about it (laughs) you know more power to him he can get paid and you know i I support every player getting it getting exactly what they want in free agency but like i could imagine deandre getting paid way more than Dwayne deadman and i'm just going to be just going a little bit bonkers there i think deadman is a better player right now will be a better player moving forward but just hasn't had the opportunity and and then you know so for the center spot you have a bunch of different guys there and then I think that could be true in the point guards as well like could you could we see some of the backup point guards get paid a lot more than other ones yeah I think that's a distinct possibility I think so too I mean restricted free agency is going to be an interesting factor there DeLon Wright Tyus Jones guys who are interesting players yeah uh yeah, who, who all of a sudden his free agency looks a lot different if Kyrie Irving doesn't come back. Uh, how much those teams prioritize going after one of those guys is a long-term option. And then I think Patrick Beverly's free agency is going to be really interesting because he's got that low cap hold. So assuming that the Clippers do go out and use cap space this summer, it's going to be really important for them to get him re-signed. If someone else makes a run at him, they could push his value much higher, I think, than we expect. And he is a great example of the concept you were talking about before of going after somebody early because his risk premium is very different than, like, let's say Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton's going to have that offer from the Bucks, but there is a possibility for Patrick Beverly that the Clippers' offer just can't materialize because they got other guys. You know, there's a possibility there. I mean, I'm sure they will do what they can. They have a great front office. They will do what they can to retain him, and they can make statements, and they can say, hey, we're going to, you know, they can move Gallo. They can do a bunch of other things. But... It's a lot. See, I, see, I think it's possible with Beverly that what happens. I I don't think that the two max free agent scenario for the Clippers is very likely. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, and you know, Kawhi and Kevin Durant will both be there, or Kyrie and and one of those guys will be there in in a month here. Uh, but I I think that's a pretty unlikely scenario. So I think what happens with Beverly more likely is kind of the Wes Matthews situation where oh. you know they agree to one contract contingent on you know them signing Kawhi, and then if not, it's like a one year balloon deal because of the fact that they try to roll roll over their cap space for 2020. That would be really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, maybe they could do a better job with the contingencies than the Mavericks did. <laughs> yeah, like, well, that's like, why I said oh, one year. Yeah, oh, your, your, your contingency is a max contract when you're coming off an Achilles injury. Yeah, that, mm. that's great. Uh, but yeah, and, and Beverly, you know, he, he did very well in their playoff series. And I mean, uh, 
I would say a, pr- a pretty known commodity around the league, but a known commodity that could be very desirable for a lot of these teams that don't have, you know, like full max space. Like that's something I've talked about in this in this year that I think will be really fun is these teams that that have space, but they don't have enough to really go after the big fish. I think they could benefit, but there are two different timelines for them. One is going early, you know, going after maybe somebody like a Patrick Beverly. But then the other one is there are so many free agents this year and the top players are going to gobble up most of the money and a lot of the flexibility in all likelihood, depending on whether they stay or leave, because if they stay with bird rights, then a lot more stays out there. But I mean, I think the other interesting thing that's in play and, and could affect Patrick Beverly is what about the teams that could have cap space or could play it over the cap if yeah. they decide to bring back their own free agents? So I think of Phoenix here with Kelly Oubre, as long as they maintain his cap hold, you know, they're probably not going to have, even if they renounce Dragon Bender, that much more than the mid-level. I guess they would have more than the mid-level in that case. So they could get up to about $10 million to offer Beverly, depending where the cap comes in. Orlando is another one of those teams. If Vucevic does leave, all of a sudden they flip from a team that probably plays over the cap and uses bird rights to re-sign him and Terrence Ross to, you know, if they renounce those two guys, they're looking at about $18 million in cap space, and then maybe they stretch Timofey Mozgov to try to get uh, close to, to max level cap space, and maybe that's how D'Angelo Russell finds a destination. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. And and the timing of Orlando's decisions could end up dictating. They're one of the, the teams where it could work out for them that they'll know on Vooch before they kind of get to the restricted offer window. And that's why his Vooch, like who he considers and how quickly could end up being a big factor. And yeah, Orlando, not only for D'Angelo Russell, but theoretically for somebody like Terry Rozier or, or somebody else. Because in Orlando, unlike Utah, or Indiana, other teams that have been rumored in the D'Angelo Russell sweepstakes, those teams have a much higher opportunity cost because they're very good right now. And yes, Orlando made the playoffs and, and all that. But Indiana and Utah have higher expectations. They have better teams right now. So for them to say, we're going to we're going to save $20 million now to, to see what happens with D'Angelo Russell, and then if Brooklyn matches, they're just screwed. Like, they're just out of, out of luck. I think that's too big a bridge. Maybe that could open up a sign and trade, but there are big logistical challenges there too with base your compensation. I mean, the other thing that that comes into play with Indiana and Utah, which makes them interesting this summer, is that those teams have multiple needs that they've got to figure out. It's not just point guard. You know, it's also you know depending on which of those Pacers free agents resign could be small forward, could be power forward, could be you know a bunch of different positions. In their case, in Utah's case, it's pretty clearly they need to come away from this offseason with a point guard and a power forward. And how you fit those both in there is tough to figure out. And on top of that, in both of those circumstances, they have pending free agents or potential free agents that totally, totally swing things. And so, yeah, there's there's urgency to use that cap space now before they start extending guys. Yeah, there's urgency to use the cap space. But also, I mean, depending on what those players like, what Thaddeus Young wants, what Indiana is willing to offer. And also another interesting element for both of them is that so Young and Bogdanovich are both in their early 30s this offseason. They're significantly older than Oladipo and Turner, which maybe Pritchard feels is the core of the Pacers moving forward. Now you can you can have players that aren't the same age. That's totally fine. But if their ideas will be better two years from now than we are right now, then Thaddeus Young and Bogdanovich are not necessarily the best fits. And if their contracts are proper value, if they don't get a discount, then harder to move them, harder to pivot, all those sorts of things. And then in Utah's case, they have guys like Joe Ingles and Jay Crowder under contract. Crowder for one more year, I believe Ingles for two after this year. But 
those guys are significantly older than Donovan Mitchell and older, not significantly, but older than Rudy Gobert. So how Lindsay and Pritchard identify their core, identify their timeline, all of those things are really important, not only in terms of retentions, but also in terms of which reasons they prioritize. I mean, I've thought of Miritich as a great fit for the Jazz for years now. Miritich is 28, so he fits in pretty well with their timeline. But if they wanted to go younger, they could do that. But it's tough then to do that because then you're yes. kind of by definition forcing yourself into restricted free agency. By the way, well, someone else whose market is going to be fascinating we haven't talked about, Malcolm Brogdon. Yes. Yeah. And and Brogdon, I feel like one of the key swings for him is going to be what happens with Kelly Oubre because he, I, I like his fit in, in Phoenix. You know, they, they traded for Tyler Johnson and sure, but Brogdon <laughs> better – a better long-term fit and and older as well. I mean, he's he's 26, played all those years at UVA. So I, I think he could be a pretty solid fit with them, but it's possible. Like if, if all the Suns have is $10 million, then Malcolm Brogdon's not having a good time, you know, like get into that. And, and Brogdon, again, like, kind of like D'Angelo Russell, where the teams that he would be best on other than the Bucks, and the same with D'Angelo Russell with the Nets, aren't necessarily the teams that are going to be flexible enough or to wait, to wait around. And so is, is it possible that both of those, their prior teams panic a little bit and just say, we can't lose them and don't, don't don't really game out the process, but they should. They absolutely should. But Brogdon in Utah would be fun. Yes, it would. Yeah, and and Brogdon though he's a more stable defender. Something that I've I've been fixated on for a couple of years now, as Rudy Gobert has established himself as a defensive player of the year. I mean, it's going to be two years running soon enough. Is that Utah is one of the few teams that switchability just doesn't really matter for them. Like you can just and you can get guys who are a little bit more limited defensively. So I mean, Brogdon's Brogdon does a pretty good job competing. And that's part of the reason why I've been so interested in Miritich there and Bielita before when I was angry that they didn't offer him part of the middle level is they can, there are certain players in the league that, uh, granted, not everybody goes to a switching system, not every great team or everything like that. We're seeing that in these playoffs. But I think that there is a value to have, to being able to accommodate different types of players. And so like you can have this with, you know, like Austin Rivers has done way better with James Harden and when he's played with other ball dominant guys. And so certain archetypes open the door for limited players that just don't have as big a market. And so I'd love to see Utah go after some of those guys too. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the, the great all-time pairings is if you can get this really stout defensive center with a stretch four who, uh, you know, whose defensive limitations are... And, and Miritich, I think, is a solid defender, particularly as a four. I think he gets in more trouble when you ask him to defend out on the three or, you know, in a switching scheme like you mentioned. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think back to uh, Kevin Clark has a piece on them on the ringer today. Those those Orlando teams of the the late 2000s, early, uh, I guess, into the early 2010s where, you know, Dwight Howard was playing alongside Richard Lewis and that kind of unlocked a lot of things for Dwight offensively and for Richard defensively, that pairing. It's a, it's a great analogy, and I think that we could see that moving forward with them and maybe with some other teams as well. I mean, we brought up the idea of the dominant centers. And one last, I mean, obviously, I could talk about free agency with you for it all the time until we until July 1st if we if we really wanted to. But like another one that's there is Paul Millsap. And so with Millsap, because his is structured as a team option, and granted, player and team can discuss, this isn't both sequestered in, in isolation booths as as they make as they think about what they're going to offer prisoners dilemma of free agency yes i've granted i would support prisoners dilemma free agency it would be a lot of fun to see but that's a that's a way to prevent super teams no one is allowed to talk to each other isolate them you just you just make you just make offers on sheets of paper and and, and you go through it i'm sure i'm sure there there are teams that have fired filed tampering claims against the lakers that would love for that to be the case but Millsap is is 
fun because of the a couple of he kind of crosses a couple of different lines and thresholds. So one of them is I talked about the idea of you know aging and cores. So he's older than than the rest of the Nuggets, but I think that's a positive for them. I think that he he helps give them you know a defensive identity, and it would be really hard to replace him. But then you get into the question with him and Harrison Barnes and a few other guys of okay maybe maybe the Nuggets treat it like Paul Millsap will be on their team in 1920, but he could be on their team in a lot of different contracts. It could be you opt him in, and then maybe you hope that you can sign him to a more team friendly deal in 2020, or you decline the option with the understanding that he will make less money next year, but in exchange for a longer term contract. And that gets compelling for me for the Nuggets because of the luxury tax. And so I would argue that the luxury tax should not be a material concern for a for an NBA owner on a, owning a team that's this good. Or if we're going to change the term of owner, we haven't done that yet. But that's how I feel. That's not necessarily how the Cronkies feel. Uh, clearly, it's not. I mean, I think it's you know, look, it's it's a concern. It's a realistic issue, especially a place that has not been a high revenue team for a long period of time. Uh, I I think you know my the default assumption I think is that the Nuggets will decline that option and sign him to a longer term deal. I actually don't think that makes sense. Is I've looked through their cap sheet because the other situation they have coming is that both Jamal Murray and Malik Beasley are extension eligible. Also, Juancho Hernan Gomez. But I think that's much more, much less likely to happen. And, you know, maybe Beasley's not quite as valuable as it looked before the playoffs when he had kind of a disappointing series against Portland in their seven game loss. But, you know, he is a, a, a young player who played a key role for them. And Murray presumably is going to be max or close to max on his next contract. So you look at that. I think you're better off having the flexibility of not having Millsap locked in for the 2020-21 season and potentially being able to resign him to a smaller contract once he's a year older and you know, not coming off presumably as strong a season. And I think they can comfortably get by in terms of the luxury tax, even with Millsap at his $30.15 million option next year. If you look at the current projections, that gives them about $11 million to spend under the tax line uh, to, you know, potentially re-sign Trey Lyles. Uh, they they could use the full mid level exception in all likelihood. I I think they're going to comfortably be able to do that. I mean that would be twelve players under contract with Millsap. They'd only have three to fill out and eleven million to do it. I don't think that's an issue at all. There's another big reason why I think Denver should pick up the option, and that is I talked about how it would be very hard to replace Paul Millsap in 2019. That is 100% correct. It would be a lot easier, for based on their books, to do so in 2020 if they don't extend Jamal Murray or, well, Beasley, his his number could end up being close to his cap hold. It doesn't matter as much. But with Jamal Murray, his cap hold is $13 million, So he's obviously going to make a ton more than that. So theoretically, let's say, in that circumstance... The Nuggets could have, without clearing any of their, without clearing any of the salary, keeping Beasley, Craig, and, and Murray's holds on the books, they could be in the twenty million range. And twenty million can get you, especially because they wouldn't need as much offensively, other than ideally a guy could space the floor. Like you could do a lot there, and maybe even they could. That could be a chance to move on from Will Barton, who only have two years left on his contract at that point. And so. The ability to adjust in 2020 is a pretty big selling point for me beyond even the Jamal Murray thing and everything else, but maybe they end up doing exactly the opposite of what we're talking about, pay Millsap for multiple years, extend Jamal Murray, and just say, this is our team for until, let's say, 2022. Nothing would surprise me. Yeah. Anything else you want to discuss? I mean, you've had a lot, of, a lot of great pieces out recently. You, t- I mean, about the the war- I think your your points about the Warriors without Durant were very well taken, and I think we've se- we've seen that come to roost a fair amount in this series. But anything else that you're working on or want to share? 
Uh, nothing specifically except continuing to uh, work on international draft projections. We haven't done those yet, but uh, those will be out before the draft in the next couple of weeks here because we only have two weeks from today until the NBA draft, believe it or not. Less than 12 hours ago, Nate and I were freaking out realizing the draft was two weeks away because <laughs> there's, so, there's so much. And it, it'll be nice to have a little bit more of a gap between the draft and free agency, but not having basically a gap between the finals, especially because this very well might end up being a longer finals. And the draft is, is pretty daunting, but it's going to be a fun sprint. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially with this series going long. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a whirlwind. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read him at ESPN. You can sometimes see him on ESPN, which is great. And you can listen to the fabulous Pelton cast that he does. Talked about it a little bit on the show. I, I love hearing Kevin talk about Seattle sports. First of all, because it's not something that I, I grew up around, particularly despite being a West Coaster, just because you know I was in my little pocket and, and the passion and, and bringing his level of intelligence, of course, to the conversation is fantastic. So you should definitely check that out. He also does some really fun stuff. Not in that in that world. There's a podcast that he did with Nate about fast food items and all that sort of stuff. So you should definitely check it out if you like KP and you damn well better. You can also follow him on Twitter at KPelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. We talked at the end about the the crazy timeline here, and it's something that I'm I'm dealing with with Real Jam Radio about how I want to square all this stuff up because who knows when we're going to have a resolution on the NBA Finals. So there will be a podcast next week. I don't know exactly what it'll be yet or who it will be with, but I'm I'm excited all the same. And that is a great reminder of a way that you can support this podcast: subscribing, downloading every episode because it comes out at different times. There was a this little pocket between games three and four to to talk. With with KP and really enjoyed doing that. And there will be a pocket some point next week. And that will be when I have that conversation. So subscribing and downloading is huge. Also leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing is, is great because that helps other people find the show, both in terms of ratings and also just those reviews. And maybe you tell people why they're interested in word of mouth, similar thing. But the single most important thing you can do with Real Jam Radio and every other show that has them is check out our sponsors, betonline.ag, use that podcast one promo code, it's a great time. So much going on right now. And the Podcast One promo code gets you a 50% welcome bonus. CBS Sports HQ, a lot going on there. So you can check that out free and so focused on, on the sports themselves. And really, whatever device you have that you where you watch streaming content, you can check it out. Yahoo Daily Fantasy, yahoo.com slash daily fantasy. Use the pod25 promo code for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. If you have any input, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do so. I read everything. I respond when I can, as many of you could guess. This is the single worst part of the year for me in terms of responding because not only am I doing all of the other, you know, watching watching games and doing writing and podcasting and all that, but also realizing that we only have two weeks until the draft. Nate and I are doing a ton of draft prep right now. So that's going on, but I read it because it's important to me. And if you take the time to write it, that is, that is my promise to you now and always. And I'll be back next week with a new episode. Don't know exactly who it'll be with or what it'll be about, but the NBA finals are still going strong and it's a little bit too early for the draft. So you can look forward to it and you can check out Dunked On, that's Nate and I, five times a week doing game analysis, draft analysis, news, all that kind of stuff. So if you want my day-to-day takes, you can get it there. And then also my written work is overwhelmingly at The Athletic. Just wrote a piece about J.R. Smith and the 
change that happened in this, the new CBA in terms of partially guaranteed and non-guaranteed contracts in terms of trades. I'm working on another one about the death of the sign-in trade that should be out early next week, probably, is the, is the current timing there. And then off-season previews, I still have the two finals teams in the Atlanta Hawks. I'm slowly, piecemeally writing the Atlanta Hawks one, so that's always fun. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.